Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Stephen Cope, the author of the new book, The Dharma in Difficult Times, Finding Your Calling in Times of Loss, Change, Struggle, and Doubt. Stephen is a best-selling author and scholar who specializes in the relationship between Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology. Stephen is a returning guest on the show. We spoke around a year ago to discuss his book, The Great Work of Your Life, which is still one of our most popular episodes. In the conversation, Stephen and I discuss the meaning of Dharma, disorienting dilemmas, making sense of suffering, the benefits of contemplation, letting go of the outcome, wisdom in daily life, and so much more. I really enjoyed connecting with Stephen again, and I think you will as well. So please welcome the wise and gracious Stephen Cope. Well, I am pleased to say welcome back to In Search of Wisdom, Stephen. It's great to be here, Joshua. I'm, I'm delighted to uh, have another chance to chat with you. I'm, I'm delighted to have you as well and really enjoyed the new book, Dharma in Difficult Times. So I'm excited to get into it. And I wanted to maybe begin back a, a few decades. Here recently, we've been asking people about maybe what started their their search for whatever that may be. But I know it was a number of decades ago you you found yourself at Kripalu. What led you there and, and what were you maybe searching for, if you can recall? I was 40 years old. Uh, this was 32 years ago. And I had um, I had always been very well since I was in my early 20s, I'd been deeply involved in Buddhist meditation. Um, at 40, I had a breakup of a long-term relationship that was super painful. And it was, we'll, we'll talk later about the disorienting dilemma. It was one of the three major disorienting dilemmas of my life. And those dilemmas force us to look broadly at who we are and who we want to be and where we're going. And at that time, I realized that I just wanted to take a year off from my very busy um, practice of psychoanalytic psychotherapy and spend a year in a retreat center meditating and doing yoga and all the things I'd been reading about. It took me about two years. I had a long-term caseload. Um, it took me about two years to actually detach from that practice in suburban Boston. And uh, I had two options. Either I was going to go to an Episcopal monastery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or I was going to head to um, Kripalu, the great yoga center in uh, Lenox, Massachusetts. I decided to go to Kripalu. Uh, I spent a year there, my year, my year's long sabbatical. And honestly, within oh a couple months of being there, I knew that I wasn't going to go back to my psychotherapy practice, that I really wanted to dedicate my life henceforward to being a deep practitioner of the contemplative arts 
And so, uh, again, that was 32 years ago. I stayed at Kripalu. I'm still there. It's been an amazing ride. And uh, I, I wouldn't have, have changed a thing. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing some, some background on that. If you can recall, I would imagine that decision at the end of that year, wrestling with this decision, I don't think I'm going back to, to this practice that you, that you built or, or another path. How was that? How was that process? How long were you, you know, discerning some of those big decisions? Honestly, Josh, it was it was very much one of those Dharma decisions that feels like it's been made for you. It was it was utterly clear once I really dove into a lifestyle of practice that this is where I wanted to be. And having been detached from my relationship and the home that we owned together and so forth, I I was a little bit on the edge of the cliff already. So um I uh, you know, it didn't take all that much for me to jump off the cliff. For some of the listeners not familiar with the term Dharma, how do you define that? So Dharma is one of those very complex Sanskrit words that it, it often means truth or path or law. In the, in, the, in the two books that you and I are going to be talking about, including the recent one, the word Dharma is a Sanskrit word that, that means sacred calling true calling or true vocation. Um, this is this is the meaning that it always carries in the in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the text that I've been working with the last couple of years. Um, so in in reference to the situation I was describing, those Dharma callings come from deep, deep within. I mean, I, I was literally, I was, I had a deep meditation practice before I went to Kripala, but I was literally sitting in my living room meditating. And I, it, it was almost like I heard a voice say, Steve, you have to take a year off. You have to take a year sabbatical to, to, to deepen your practice and to study. And so it was, it was utterly clear. And then I just had to make it. I just had to do all the practicalities around it, which was no small deal mm. and and wouldn't be a small deal for almost anybody, like pick up my life and leave for a year. Um, now, once I got to Kripalu, I'd already made the shift. I'd already jumped off the cliff, if you will. And then it was very easy. I mean, I when I, when I discovered Kripalu, I discovered, and now remember, we're talking about 1989. Um, I discovered a thriving community of 350 or 400 residents living together in a, in a huge old monastery and really practicing very uh, devoutly, if I can use that word, all of the, the whole gamut of practices of yoga and meditation. They were interested in transformation. They were interested in what's called in, in yoga, the fully alive human being. How do we become everything we can be? And so they were very interested as a community in my expertise in, in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, because that's another uh, paradigm of investigating how we can be everything we, we are. So I found this beautiful marriage of uh, a community based on Eastern practices, but also fascinated by the Western 
contemplative traditions and psychological traditions. Mm -hmm. So um, it was kind of a, a marriage made in heaven for me. And from the very beginning of my arrival in that community, I was I was pretty lit up. Mm. You mentioned that voice of of have to in your experience of, of research and, and working with people the over these many decades. Is that a good differentiator between this is something I want to do versus this is something I have to do? Um, it is. I would say, Josh, it's one of the what I would call it's a it's a finger pointing toward Dharma, that that still small voice that really comes to you, not just once, but usually rather insistently. Um, that's one of the fingers pointing toward this this idea of dharma, this idea of sacred calling. But there are others. Um, I would say uh, among those are investigate not only what that still small voice is telling you, but um, what's what's obviously lighting you up in your life at the time at the time, because that energy of experience of being lit up and um, enthusiastic and fascinated that is a component of dharma and then there there are other more difficult complex components like like the idea of, of duty dharma is sometimes translated as sacred duty and as soon as i bring up the duty it brings up a slightly different color so oh a duty that maybe that doesn't exactly light me up but i have to do it i feel called to do it um, so one also has to investigate one's duties, one's duties to oneself, the family, society. Um, and, and that's another finger pointing toward Dharma, if you will. Uh, I, By the way, my definition of duty is that thing that if you do not do it will feel like a self-betrayal. So in, in that definition of duty, duty arises from within. It's not necessarily what's imposed on you from without, but what is that ardent sense of duty that you feel deep within, right? So I um, I feel a profound, now that I've joined forces with this fantastic institution called Kripalu, I feel a deep duty to um, bring everything that I've got to the table to help it thrive. Um, now, Everything that I do in that regard, they're not all things that light me up. So I've become a, a kind of a senior pillar there. And one of the things I've done in recent years is, is raise money. That's not something that necessarily lights me up, but it's a duty. It goes along with everything else that I, that I do there. I get to write and teach and, but I also have some administrative things that I, that I have to do from time to time. So, um, duty is, it is got a slightly different color than lit up, right? Um, and the the third finger pointing at Dharma that I'd point your listeners to is is what I would call difficulty. So very often difficulty or let's say illness or relationship problems, family problems, financial problems, very often difficulties are also fingers pointing at Dharma. Um, I, I wrote a chapter in my last book on Dharma called When Difficulties Arise, Take the Measure Dharma. So it's possible that an illness arises and you say, okay, 
I'm going to organize my life around healing from this illness. This is my calling now. This is what I'm called to do. Uh, and I, I wrote a chapter about the brilliant uh, teacher, Marion Woodman, whom I taught with for years, who developed bone cancer. And she was one of the great, she was the great feminist Jungian analyst of the 20th century. And um, when that happened, she said, this is my calling. My calling is to heal from bone cancer. Her doctor said, no way, ain't going to happen. She said, okay, I'm surrendering. I'm closing my practice. I'm bringing everything I've got to this process of healing. And she healed. And she taught again for another 10 years. Um, so that's another finger pointing at Dharma, difficulty. So I would say, what lights you up? What duties call to you from deep inside? And what difficulties might be fingers pointing at Dharma for you? How about for you? I'm curious about the process of writing this book. I feel you have a special talent of of really bringing these these lives in each of these chapters to, to life. And I, I wonder, how was that process of, of writing about some of these difficult times that some of these perennial figures, you know, went through in their lives? Well, it's, it's kind of a great question, Josh, because I, I actually started the book before COVID, before we actually really had <laughs> bona fide difficult times. Um, and the reason I started writing it was I have been having a difficult time. I, I am in relationship with a, no, a number of large institutions and I'd had a, a squabble with one of those institutions and I, I felt like I'd been treated very unfairly in a way that actually affected my career. And so I, I felt, wow, what's my duty around this? Should I get into a war about this? Um, and I decided, no, I think I'm going to examine the question of difficulty and how Dharma interacts with, with difficulty. And so I started writing the book and, um, then a year and a half into it, real difficulty hit COVID and then the unmasking of all of the social injustice in, in this country and, and around the world and everything that happened with in, in, in conjunction with COVID that changed the world. And I literally, Josh, I literally had to rewrite the whole book. Wow. Um, from just about from the beginning, there are right now, there's a whole filing cabinet full of chapters that I exited from the book in order to write about, um, about, well, we talked a little bit about the disorienting dilemma so let me let me start by saying this book originated with a disorienting dilemma that I was involved in. And then I started looking at the disorienting dilemmas uh, of of us as a country of America. And of course, the most obvious disorienting dilemma and a disorienting di dilemma, again, is a dilemma that forces you to realize you're not seeing the whole picture. It forces you to 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 develop a more nuanced understanding of reality. And that's what we've been doing as a country for the last couple of years. Um, and so I decided to look at the disorienting dilemma in America of slavery and racism and xenophobia 
and everything, all of the difficulties that stem from that. Um, realizing that the Bhagavad Gita, this ancient text, has been one of the most important pieces of guidance for for generations of Americans and, and others struggling with racism, hate, xenophobia, the horrendous um, issue of slavery, and so forth. And um, I, I found the natural beginning for this uh, investigation was Henry David Thoreau's dilemma in 1830s Concord, Massachusetts, when he was an abolitionist, uh, slavery was going full tilt in the South, and his dilemma was, well, I don't agree with this. He, he, had, he had three things that he disagreed with the federal government on. One was slavery. One was the way in which Native Americans had been treated. Um, and um, what was the third one? Uh, the, the rape of the forest. Um, he said, I, what's my duty in the face of this difficulty? I'm an American. I'm an American citizen. I pay taxes. So he decided not to pay taxes, and he, he went to jail only for one night. But as a result of going to jail, he wrote his great essay on civil disobedience about his own little experience there in the small town of Concord where he was jailed for not paying his poll tax. And that essay um, became influential in the lives of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Mandela and, and generations of people uh, who were fighting against the forces of what in the Bhagavad Gita would be called disorder, a dharma, evil, injustice, and so forth. Um, so I start with Thoreau, and then every chapter moves a little bit deeper into the story. I go from Thoreau to Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, to a, a fabulous soldier in the Civil War who who, who fought um, to Sojourner Truth, who was alive and doing her brilliant speaking at that time. Uh, then on to um, the early 20th century with Jim Crow and Marianne Anderson's great concert at Lincoln Memorial. And then finally, Martin Luther King Jr. and Ruby Sales, who brings us right up to the present moment. So I take this whole trajectory from 1830s Concord to the present moment, and I look at eight different lives and how they um, found themselves in the in the grip of this disorienting dilemma: slavery, racism, Jim Crow, etc. And what they did about it, and what action they took. Um, so the thread that connects it are the principles of of the great Bhagavad Gita, um, and um, so that's kind of an overview. And I'm excited to to get into the chapter on Sojourner Truth. Uh, like so many of them, as I said, you really bring them to life. That that chapter, I, I tend to I listen to most of it on on Audible, and uh, I tend to to walk. And that that chapter really will just stop you in your in your tracks. It's a uh, it's a really moving chapter. Her story was. Uh, um, Something, uh, sadly to say, I wasn't familiar with prior to reading your book. So it was great. Well, many of us aren't, Josh. And, and isn't it an amazing story? Yeah. Now, this is, this is the story, for those of you who don't know it, of, of a woman who was enslaved in the North. 
And the truth is that we think of slavery as a Southern American phenomenon. There were, in in the 1830s and 40s, there were 30,000 enslaved people in New York State alone in the North. And Isabel Baumfrey, her English name, was one of them. She was uh, the daughter of a an enslaved woman who was extremely spiritual, taught her the Bible, taught her all the great tenets of Christianity. Sojourner Truth was this brilliant young woman who who drank in spirituality and spiritual practice. She she was one of many black women who developed a a, a profound practice of prayer and spirituality. Um, they had these things called rural refuges where she built her own little um, kind of shed out in the woods made of made of brambles and briars and sticks. And she would retreat there to pray. Mm. She developed an amazing practice of prayer and she self-liberated herself when she was 28 years old. She simply walked away from her master Um and from that moment on, she decided her life was going to be guided by the Holy Spirit, with which she felt deeply connected. Um, and at a certain point, a number of years later, she had one of those voice experiences where the Spirit came to her and said, you will now spend the rest of your life wandering and preaching the gospel and preaching the truth and talking about your own experience of slavery um, and emancipation. Mm. So that's exactly what she did. And, and the whole way she was guided by the Spirit. She would very often, she was driving a horse and buggy, she would very often let the horse simply decide where he wanted to go. And she'd land in a little village, she'd get out in the center of the village, put up her signs and posters, and start to preach. Mm. She became one of the most important itinerant preachers in um, 1850s America and was beloved of both blacks and whites, all races. Um, She had a huge effect on uh, bringing the North to the abolitionist stance. Uh, And later on in her life became deeply involved in in, uh, women's suffrage issues and, and women's issues. But the, the point of the chapter is that um, she, she was a powerful speaker. She was very gritty. She would actually use her own body, the, the whip marks on her back, the, the finger that had been broken and damaged and ruined in, in slavery. Um, she was this fully embodied woman. She'd get in front of a crowd and sing, and she made up her own hymns, and they'd sing the hymns together. She preached, and she preached brilliantly because she knew sections of the Bible entirely by heart. Mm. And the what I love is very often she would be confronted by men, by crowds of angry men, whom she would, by her sheer brilliance, uh, talk down, back down off the cliff, and um, and persuade of, of her arguments. I wanted to read a, a short passage from that chapter, and and maybe if you could uh, uh, finish up the story for the for the listeners, I think it, it it paints the picture, if you will, of of some of the challenges. So, as you mentioned, um, 
speaking tour. She was she was speaking to a large group of uh, of college students, and you write the students entered the hall with jests and jokes. Spitballs flew from one corner to another. When Sojourner Truth took the podium, the students hissed and booed. They thumped on their seats. They broke into unrestrained laughter. Truth stood calmly and faced down the students until the room stilled. Then she spoke. Well, children, she said, when you go to heaven and God asks you, what made you hate the colored people? Have you got your answer ready? Would you mind finishing up that that story, Stephen? And, and maybe we can talk a bit about views and, and beliefs. Yeah, no, not at all. And And that silenced the crowd, of course. And then she said, well, when I go to heaven and I'm asked why I had difficulty with white people, this is what I'll say. She turned around and bared her back, which was uh, a, a welter of lash marks um, that was unfathomable. And she she literally bared her entire back to the congregation, mm-hmm. and there was not a dry eye in in the house. People were so profoundly moved by her embodied rhetoric. Um, there were there were moments. There was another famous moment where she bared her breast because she was she was accused of being a man. Uh, so a group of angry white men in the back of the church where she was speaking said, "You can't possibly be a, a black woman because black women aren't aren't that smart and they can't preach like that. And besides, you look kind of like a man because her voice was very guttural." Well, she said, "Okay." Oh, and then the guy, the, the, the man, the mob of white men demanded that she bear her breasts um, to a, a small group of women in the congregation who would confirm that she was a woman or a man. And, of course, they thought it would confirm that she was a man. Well, she said, child. She always started with child. Um, I have no problem. She bared her breast to the entire congregation. And, of course, she was a woman. And mm. um, that pretty much ended that particular argument. It's tough to imagine someone facing such difficult times with, you know, with, with courage, virtue, and, and wisdom. Yeah. I think of just that, that wisdom to even, even to ask that rhetorical question to the crowd of, of young people, have you mm-hmm. got your, your answer ready? Yeah. So difficult for us to, to do. The thing was, Josh, she was literally she had literally turned her life over to the spirit, to um, this, this bigger vision, this bigger consciousness. And she was channeling that. So just like Gandhi and, and others that I write about who have turned their lives over to whatever, what you want, whatever you want to call God or the spirit or the divine or illumined mind, there's a, a certain kind of brilliance and wisdom and genius that comes through the mouths of these channels. And she was a, such an exemplar of that. How do we make sense of, of suffering in evil? It seems like figures like Sojourner 
and Gandhi and, and so many that you write about in the book have to probably wrestle with suffering and, and evil and how do they, is there a thread of, of maybe how they make sense of, of some of these things in the world? Yeah, there is a thread. Um, the, um, and, and, and I write from the point of view, remember, of the Bhagavad Gita and therefore the, the Eastern contemplative traditions. The thread is that we all suffer from the same roots of evil and suffering. All of the contemplative traditions found that the three, what Buddhism calls the three poisons or yoga, the three evils, are, are grasping, aversion, and delusion. Or in the Buddhist lexicon, it's greed, hatred, and delusion. There, there are three so-called proximate causes of the arising of goodwill. That is, let, let me just say that I, I start the book with a chapter on Gandhi, who had to confront his own hatred and aversion for the amount of, of injustice that he saw in his native India when he returned from South Africa. He really had to wrestle with this problem of anger, righteous anger, and in many ways deserved anger for the kind of suffering that he saw that was uh, spawned by colonialism, by the British Raj. And so he had to wrestle with this in a, in a way for all of us. And he finally decided two things. Number one, there was some wisdom in his anger. And the wisdom was that it drew a line. It brought him a lot of energy. Gandhi was known to have a serious temper, right? So very often he would draw on that energy of anger, um, righteous anger. but he realized that if if it were something that he was going to cultivate within him, that, that righteous anger, that it would eventually burn him up. The, the um, anger is seen in the contemplative tr traditions as very much like a forest fire that burns up its own fuel. So mm -hmm. if you entertain anger, if you promote anger within, um, it, it will eventually destroy you. It will burn you up. So that he realized, and he had realized from the early days of his work in South Africa, that if he used anger and hate as the engine to drive his liberation tactics, that it would, it would destroy him, it would destroy everyone. And that actually what he had to use was the power of love and goodwill. And this is something that each person in this book has had to wrestle with. The contemplative traditions have a beautiful way of understanding what Gandhi did. And, and it's about, okay, because Gandhi, keep in mind, when he was seen as an enemy by the British Raj, Gandhi said, I'm not going to see you as my enemy. I'm going to love you, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And so he had to dig deep to find out how can he feel goodwill for his British captors, his British tormentors. He wanted to, to motivate himself through goodwill. And there are three proximate causes of the arising of goodwill in the, in the Bhagavad Gita and in the Western and the Eastern tradition. The first of these is look for the good in the other person. This doesn't mean that we go delusional and, and not see the bad, but 
look for the good because there will be some good there, except in a very few cases. The second one that I think is pertinent to our conversation right now is identify with the suffering because we all suffer from the same thing. We Mm -hmm. all have the experience of suffering from grasping, from greed, craving, clinging, holding on. We all have the experience of suffering from hatred, from aversion. Um, We all have the experience of suffering from delusion. So if you can identify the uh, the experience of suffering, you can say, you can say to the British Raj, you're suffering from grasping, you're suffering from hatred. I've suffered from that too. There is a there is freedom from that. Let's together see if we can find the freedom. So look for the good, identify with the suffering. Um, and the third one is acknowledge that all beings want to be happy. And to the extent that they're behaving in ways that don't make them happy, it's because they're deluded. It's because they're ignorant. It's because they're not seeing. Now, the interesting thing is, I, as I said, I take this all the way to Martin Luther King and to John Lewis and the, um, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And it was on the Edmund Pettus Bridge when he was being beat that he had this epiphany, John Lewis did, that these white men who are beating me right now are caught in the same web of hatred that everyone's caught in. And he realized that was that was freedom for him to realize that, that it wasn't a black and white world. It wasn't a, a, a world of good and evil that um, they were caught in a web that he also had been caught in to a certain extent and in different areas of his life. And, and that his job was to find the path out for himself and all beings. Um, I write the story of Ruby Sales, a great American activist who's down in, in Alabama, a uh, wonderful black woman. Um, and she had the same exact same epiphany. She, I, I heard her speak at Harvard Divinity School, and she did this beautiful chant where uh, she chanted about, I refuse to hate you. I refuse to hate you. I refuse to hate you. And um, it was in the style of the old Southern Black chant, and it was super powerful for that room full of Harvard Divinity students. So helpful, Stephen. How do you see contemplation helping us to come to to these types of realizations? How do you see the role of of contemplative practices? So. The, the role of contemplative practices um, is, is twofold. Number one, there, there, are two, there, there are a number of different kinds of meditation. Let's talk about meditation now because meditation is the very core of all contemplative practices in the West and in the East. There are two different kinds of meditation. There are two different ways of training the attention. And meditation is nothing other than training human attention. In the first, we train the attention to focus on, in in a one-pointed way, on the breath or on an icon or whatever it is. This is concentration meditation, sometimes called shamatha. It has many different names, but it's the same in all traditions. And that form of meditation where the the attention becomes laser-focused on 
either the breath, let's say the breath at the tip of the nostrils or an icon if you want to do something external. That form of meditation profoundly, profoundly calms the mind, soothes the mind. It is, as it said, anti-anxiolytic. That is, it, it counters anxiety. The brain, in these moments when we become profoundly absorbed in an object of contemplation, um, is flooded with GABA and serotonin and all those great chemicals that, that counteract hyperreactivity. So the first form of meditation in, in all traditions is this gathering and focusing of the mind to become very one-pointed. And, and in that laser-sharp one-pointedness that we develop, um, uh, the, the mind itself calms down profoundly. But the second form of meditation is once you have developed that calm, focused, laser-like capacity to become absorbed, um, you take that same uh, concentrated attention and you begin to use it to scan the mind and body itself. And the whole, as Goenkaji says, great Buddhist teacher, the whole field of mind and matter you actually use the, the brain as a kind of powerful searchlight to examine how the mind itself works, how the mind itself is made. And the result of that examination in, in all the traditions is the discovery of what are called the three marks of existence. If you scan the way reality works, the way the human mind, motivation, perception works, you discover three things. You discover, first of all, that um, impermanence is one of the chief characteristics of all human life. Everything changes all the time, impermanence. The second thing is, is that's called anicca. The second mark of existence is anicca or anatta, which means, technically it means no self, but really what it means is that our connection, our profound interest in I, me, and mine, in my work, in my great books, um, is misguided because the truth of reality is we're profoundly interconnected, all of us. All sentient beings are profoundly interconnected. So it's not about I, me, and mine. It's about this co-created world. Um, and the third is is called dukkha. The third mark of existence, and in, in that we see that much of what we consider to be bringing us happiness and pleasure, i.e., all those aspects of grasping aversion, actually don't bring happiness or true happiness. They uh, they simply bring more grasping and um, and and clinging and holding on. So. Two forms of meditation. One, concentration, which brings about what the Buddhists call the experiences of delight, the, the, the mind that is capable of rapture and bliss. And the second kind is this, what are sometimes called the, um, the insight practices that show, um, how the world and the mind work and, and interact. And what they show is the profound nature of interdependence, the, the profound nature of impermanence, and the profound nature of suffering that exudes from grasping aversion and delusion. So that was a lot in just a few paragraphs, but that's an answer. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I'm, I'm curious to ask, 
as if you were to look in the in the the rearview mirror at these many decades of your your practice what might you share with a a young person that is contemplating picking up some sort of contemplative practice what anything come to mind there oh so much comes to mind because <laughs> i i'm 72 now and for whatever reason almost all of my friends are in their 40s i i tend to hang out with younger people i don't know why just cuz i do but with every one of them they'll tell you this i'm constantly saying please learn to meditate please my best friend brian is 42 please brian promise me before you die that you will develop a meditation practice why because i've been doing it for 40 years and the fruit of long term devoted meditation practice is an experience of well-being that is almost impossible to describe mm-hmm. so not all the time but i practice i i sit with a group here in in albany where i now live uh three times a week for an hour and a half sitting and walking i do three or four yoga classes a week um I, what I would say to young people is this. It's, um, it takes some work and some effort and some time to learn to meditate. So often we get the, the message, whether meant or not, that oh, just sit down and meditate and you'll feel fabulous and you'll feel blissful. And the truth is not like that. When you sit down to meditate the first time, it's difficult. Because you encounter the mind, you encounter what we call ordinary discursive mind, which is kind of crazy. And the early young meditators, most of their time is just spent getting used to the extreme strangeness of sitting with the way it is to be in this body and in this mind. And then after a while, you begin to actually learn the technique. And along with that comes very soon does come the occasional experience of profound rapture and bliss and and well-being. And those brief experiences, which may only last seconds early on, keep you coming back from war and um, also teach you how to relate to this mind, which is constantly generating more suffering for us. Every one of us listening right now, our minds are generating grasping aversion illusion even as we speak what's for lunch i wonder i think i'll go get that brownie um (laughs) and yeah that's okay that's human but in meditation we begin to get a little perspective on that just a little bit of of clear empty bright light space that we can dwell in for just a few minutes and it, it becomes your, your, your cushion or your yoga mat becomes this profound home base where you come back again and again to the center of things, to the center of your own being, your own spirit. Um, but I, I want people to know that it takes effort. It really does early on. And, and it also has something which I call fruition, which means the effort pays off in spades. It's, it's, it's remarkable to get to my age and to have had 40 years of meditation um, and to sit down as I did last night after a very busy, hectic day and within 20 minutes to, to settle 
and within an hour to feel a profound sense of well-being, whatever the day created in terms of difficulty was gone. Um, and um, so I, I just so recommend that people try it without illusion or delusion and stick with it. You know, we, we now know, Josh, a mere science tells us seven or eight minutes a day will actually change the brain over time. Seven or eight minutes a day of practice, of, of really concerted effort in meditation practice. Now, I recommend more. And, um, and, and, and more is definitely at some point better. But um, for those who are, are interested, find yourself a group, a teacher. I, I particularly like meditating with a group of people. Um, for, for those of you who are, are avid cyclists, you'll know this term that's called, um, uh, now I'm blocking on the name, um, drafting. So when you're drafting, you're, you're cycling right behind a, perhaps a stronger cyclist and you're in, um, his draft of air is, is helping to pull you along. When you sit with a group, the same phenomenon happens. There is some kind of group consciousness that begins to arise in a group that's meditating together that pulls you forward and, and gives you, encourages you and keeps you on the path. So uh, I sit now at the, at the local Buddhist Shambhala Center here in Albany with a group of people. I do meditation uh, with them. I do hot yoga at the hot yoga studio here in Albany. Um, three times a week, it's, it's uh, it's something that hopefully I will never have to give up in my life. How about this idea of the polarity of action and contemplation? Maybe I think of that with Gandhi, this, this idea of how does that come in off of the cushion in everyday life? Well, this is where the Bhagavad Gita comes in, because the Bhagavad Gita was written probably around the third century BCE, or maybe a little bit later, um, precisely as a scripture to help us learn how to live in the world, how to learn a kind of enlightened way of living in the world, understanding that most people are not going to be monks or nuns. Most people are not going to be able, as I was, to, to leave for a year or 30 years to go live in an ashram or a retreat center. The Bhagavad Gita was precisely a scripture for people wanting to live a passionate spiritual life in the world. Um, and, and what it teaches is that with this practice of meditation and yoga, you can slowly develop the awakened parts of the mind so that the mind then begins to discern what would be wise action in the world. What is my calling in the world? How should I behave in the midst of the disorienting dilemma, in the midst of the dilemmas that we're all facing right now with COVID, with social justice issues? What's my role? What's my duty? And that knowledge, that understanding, which is called vijnana or consciousness or enlightened, awakened mind, is there in all of us. And practice, meditation and yoga practice, systematically cultivate that so that we begin to make choices that are based on uh, the, the wider wisdom and perspective of illumined mind or awake mind. Um, mm. 
And, and so there's where we get the combination between action and contemplation. So Gandhi, as I said, when, when Gandhi came back to India after his 20 years in South Africa, um, the first thing he did was he said, I want to take a tour of India. I want to reconnect with the motherland. I want to understand what her current woes are and strengths, and I want to reconnect with her spirituality. He spent seven months on trains and in horse-drawn carts and walking the length and breadth of India. And when he returned, he was pissed off because he saw the damage that had been done by 300 years of colonialism. And he wasn't sure how to act. He wasn't sure what his role was. He wasn't sure what his dharma was. And so even though he was being encouraged by Nehru and and others to get right into action, he said, no, the first step here is to go into meditation and prayer. The first step is to sit with my ashram out in Gujarat, to sit with my fellow practitioners and to pray and to meditate and to spin cotton into cloth, which is one way he meditated. Mm. And he did that for almost a year before he settled down, before he came to grips with the anger that had been stirred up in him as a result of what he saw on his seven-month trip. Um, And he saw that he could move into action in a wise way that was discerning and that was not motivated by hatred and ill will for the British, but that was actually motivated by loving kindness precisely by those three that I mentioned before, look for the good, identify with the suffering, know that all beings want to be happy. Uh, and, and so he was ready after his in-depth uh, taking of refuge in, that, in his monastery, in his ashram. He was ready then to go out into the town squares and begin to speak. Um, but he, the rest of his life would be an oscillation between um, his ashram, Sabarmati ashram, and activism. So that while most of us think that Gandhi's life was all about activism, it was half about activism and half about really his search for God, his quest for God, his quest for the spirit, to be enlivened by the spirit, to listen to discerning awake mind, to make decisions based on that. Um, so Gandhi, the, the chapters on Gandhi begin the book because for me, he has been the most profound exemplar of what a life looks like based on these principles. Um, mm-hmm. And then I take it from there to throw and all the way to Martin Luther King and Ruby Sales. Well, I'm so grateful for your time, Stephen. I've got just a couple more questions, if I if I could. One is around... What I see to be such an important and and misunderstood idea around action of you're entitled to the action, but not to the fruits. This idea of letting go of the outcome. And you mentioned earlier about the the three marks of existence, one of them being non-self, which can get super complicated and complex, but just as you described it. This may be letting go of the I, me, my. How do you 
advise people to think about this idea of, of letting go of, of the outcome? It's the hardest pillar. So in in my first book on Dharma, I describe the, the four pillars of of the Gita. The first one is discern your Dharma with that awake mind that we talked about. The second is do do your Dharma full out with passion. And the third is let go of the outcome. So that is so difficult for Westerners to understand because we're so achievement oriented and we're so oriented towards success. Krishna actually says to Arjuna in the dialogue, he says, it's better to fail at your own sacred calling than to succeed at someone else's. Why is this? It's because when you're grasping to outcome, and a good example of this is my young music students. So for several years, I was on the faculty of a great um, summer music institute. And I taught these brilliant young musicians age 22 to 26 or so. Um, and I taught them this path, find your dharma. Well, most of them had done that. Do it full out. They were doing that. Let go of the fruits. What do you mean let go of the fruits? What? No. <laughs> I'm very attached to a good outcome with this Beethoven sonata I'm teaching. Well, the trouble is that grasping, that holding on, that clinging, to outcome actually interferes with your capacity to be present in the moment. So you're playing your Beethoven sonata in front of the, the shed at Tanglewood with 20,000 people. You're playing it well, and all of a sudden you start to get aroused by ideas of this is going to be fantastic, going to be famous. Um, I, I want this last few section, this last section to go incredibly well. Instantly, you're cut off from your true connection, your true presence with the music. And that's where the genius of it is, is being present with the moment in the music performance and letting go of that craving for outcome. Mm -hmm. um, students begin, all of my music students begin to experiment with that. And they realize that there's another way. There's another way. Having a death grip on outcome for musicians or any performer um, is the surest way to kill spontaneity and authentic energy that I can think of. But there's another way to do it. So they, they always said, well, Steve, how do you do it then? How do we become highly masterful? Here's how you do it, by, by what we call deliberate practice. You practice deliberately like a craftsperson every day. You practice with the intention of getting better. You listen to feedback. You create feedback loops so that you can get feedback. Um, and you become, rather than a highly emotional um, singer who may have a good night or may not have a good night, depending on how they feel, you become dependent then on your craft rather than your craving and your grasping and your, your emotional reaching for outcome. And you sit down at the piano to play the, the piece and you let go of anything that's going to happen, anything that's going to interfere with your being present, and you dive in. Mm -hmm. And doing it this way, relying on craft, you can let go of relying on how much you want it to happen, because that will actually interfere with your performance. 
Another great image I use is some people remember Michelle Kwan, the great American figure skater who, who won a number of gold medals. Um, I'll never forget the time that she was, I think, placed against Sarah Brady, this young upstart. And all the commentation was about how she has to defend her title. And so Michelle Kwan is going out there to defend her title. So it, it turns out there are two forms of grasping. One is reaching and the other is protecting. That's another form of grasping. Now she's protecting her, her gold medal, right? Sarah Brady comes out and she's not protecting nothing. She's, she says in the interview beforehand, she says, I'm just going to have a great time. I'm just going to be present and really enjoy. I'm at the Olympics. How cool is that? So naturally, who does the better skate? Sarah Brady. She goes out and flies. And and I think I've forgotten what happened to Michelle Kwan, but um, you get the point of the story. The the grasping to outcome interferes with the actual performance itself. And this is true in all fields of mastery. So it's a little bit of a hard sell for my musician friends, but I can tell you now, after all these years, I get cards and letters from all over the world. Steve, I just... Like I, I stood in the middle of the Paris opera and I sang my part in the Messiah and I let go of the outcome and it was marvelous. And I made two mistakes and nobody noticed and I didn't even barely notice. Uh, because one of the things is when you're in the flow state, mistakes do not derail you. If you're grasping the outcome, mistakes will derail you, but not when you're in the flow. Such an important point. We've got just one final wrap-up question that we've been asking people for a bit now that, that come on the, the show. It's, how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? I mean, that's the whole question, isn't it, really? It gets us right back to the that interplay between practice and action, between sitting on the cushion and, and acting in the world. I can tell you that practice is just what it means. What are we practicing? We're being, we're practicing being present for the moment. We're practicing being present for awake mind, for intuitive mind. We're practicing trusting that we have this wisdom, this knowledge, this understanding about what would be the right action to take. And so, when we go out in public, when we go out into the world, we can also practice the same thing. Practice being present. Practice uh, rather than defaulting to all of your ordinary patterns, most of which are based on greed, hatred, and delusion. Rather than on defaulting those, practice on being present. What would the, what would the skillful answer be to this question? Um, Take a few moments, breathe, bring in all the practice that you use on the mat and take it into your action in the world. A lot of your action, nonetheless, will, some of it won't be that wise. Some of it will be driven by patterns because human beings are pattern-making animals primarily. So when we're anxious, when we're afraid, we default to pattern. And very often that's not the wisest way to go. But with practice, you practice on the mat what you also want to practice in, in real life. And things don't change in this regard overnight at all. And 
like I've been in, I've been involved in this for 40 years and I still very often find myself defaulting to old patterns that I later look at and go, well, that wasn't so skillful, Steve. You could have done that in, in a slightly different way that would have left you without remorse, which you now have. Um, and by the way, in the Buddhist tradition, remorse is not considered a negative emotion. Guilt mm. and regret and some of the others are, but remorse is simply seeing, oh, that wasn't so skillful. I, I think I'll do it differently another time. Uh, remorse is seen as a positive mind state because it's seeing clearly um, how things went with that action. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I am I'm so grateful to you, Stephen. Uh, again, for the listeners, the book is The Dharma in Difficult Times. I highly recommend it along with anything that Stephen's written, um, some previous work, uh, the great work of your life, deep human connection, and and others. So where would you point people interested in learning more about you, Stephen? Um, they can come to my website, which is uh, stephencope.com. And that's where you'll find my teaching schedule. Um, you can go to kripalu.org, K-R-I-P-A-L-U.org, and type in my name. That's with a P-H-S-D-E-P-H-E-N-C-O-P-E. And there are tons of articles there and, and information about me. Those are the two primary sources, Josh. All right. Love it. Well, we'll link that in the show notes for the listeners. Stephen Cope, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom again. I really appreciate it. Josh, it's my pleasure. Anytime, my friend. And, and good luck with your endeavors down there. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.